All right, all right. Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Alan said, we are thankful that you're here today, uh, that God's brought you to gather with us this morning. Hope you've been enjoying the nice weekend uh, weather that we've been having. I spent most of yesterday uh, outside uh, with my son Owen. He had his opening day of t-ball yesterday. So uh, I have some lobster colored arms this morning because of that. Uh, But man, it's good just to have the spring weather and be able to be outside some this morning. So before we jump into our time in God's Word, let's just spend some time in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we could gather together as your church this morning, that we can spend time opening up your Word and being able to understand what you have to say to us this morning as we continue to talk about the resurrection of Christ. And so I pray that no matter where we are at on our spiritual journey this morning, whether we're walking closely with you, or whether we feel very distant from you right now, whether we maybe don't even believe that you are real or exist, I pray that our time in your word this morning would help us to move along this journey, to become closer to you, to understand more, and be brought into a deeper relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that we would be both encouraged and challenged as we look at your word this morning. And we pray that your spirit would do that work in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every week at Sojourn, we preach from the scriptures from the Bible. So if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand and there'll be a few folks that'll bring a copy of uh, the Bible around to you. We'd love for you to be able to read along with us. And if you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures, um, you can take that home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. So feel free to do that if you don't actually have a copy of God's word. You know, sometimes in life, you can find out about something, receive uh, some bit of information, some bit of news that when you hear it, when you receive it, you say something like, well, man, that changes everything for me. That changes everything for me. I mean, for instance, if you live in this area and maybe you're working hard trying to make ends meet and that's a struggle for you, it's, it's hard to pay your bills sometimes, just the cost of living in this area is high trying to pay off your school loans, and it can be difficult uh, to be able to do that. But if one day you got a phone call from someone who said that a distant relative of yours passed away and has left you millions of dollars, you might say, well, that changes everything for me. Well, today as we continue to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to continue to talk about the resurrection of Christ. But what we'll see today is that understanding the resurrection of Jesus provides that bit of information that should change everything for us, not just for the future, but for us now. And and maybe you don't yet know Christ. Maybe you doubt the validity of the resurrection. And I just want to say to you this morning that I'm glad that you're here I hope this is a welcoming community, a place where you can ask questions, where you can listen, where you can think. And I hope that God will use this time in his word this morning for you on your spiritual journey and help you in a a good way this morning. So whether you know Christ and follow Christ or you don't, I hope our time together under God's word will help us as a community in the midst of Northern Virginia to rise above the fog that we so often find ourselves in in this life, to see what the good life really is all about. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 again. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to spend the next few weeks walking through this chapter just as we see Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, kind of unpack a theology of the resurrection, why this matters, not just for Easter as we celebrate that, but every day of our lives. 
And let me just say a few things as we get into this. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 34, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit. So I'll let you know that we're going to jump around verses a little bit to help us to hopefully understand what Paul's saying. And what we're going to look at this morning is very theological in nature. It has a very theological uh, bent to it, a sense to it, and so I don't want us to get lost in that. I hope this is clear to us this morning because we're going to camp out here to make sure that we understand this theology that's going to drive us to kind of the practical implications that we can take from what Paul is saying to us this morning. So hang with me as we walk through this text, and hopefully we're able to understand this more. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. I'm just going to read right now through verse 19 to kind of set up where we're going here. The Apostle Paul writes this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still In your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Last week we celebrated Easter and we looked at verses 1 through 11, where Paul reminds us and refreshes us in the good news that is the best news that Jesus died and was buried, that Jesus rose and was seen. We said that's the content of the gospel. It's the remedy to our predicament. See, all of us have sin. All of us have rebelled against God, both in our hearts and outwardly. And that has affected us. That sin that we have has affected us totally and completely. And none of us in this room, none of us in all of the world, all of creation can do anything on our own to make ourselves right with God, no matter how much good we do, no matter how many religious boxes we check. But the good news is is that God has made a way for us to be right with him. And he did this by sending his only son to us as one of us to rescue and redeem us. It's through Jesus' life and through Jesus' death and through Jesus' resurrection that sin and its effects are defeated. Reconciliation with God is now possible. Reconciliation with one another is now possible. And the restoration of all things has begun. So this good news is for anyone and everyone. As we said last week, there's no one that's too far gone from God's redeeming grace to bring that reconciliation to bear in your life. But also no one is too righteous that they don't need God's redeeming grace that comes in and through Christ. But Paul doesn't end his discussion on the resurrection of Jesus there. He continues because he knows the situation of the Corinthians, the people he's originally writing this letter to. But we also now receive this. And it's interesting because their faith struggles can be very similar to ours. See, the resurrection is not just relevant to Easter, and the resurrection is not just something related to Christ alone. It's more personal than that. And here's what Paul's going to get at as we walk through this whole text is this. Not only is Christ raised, but if you and I are united with him by faith, we also will be physically raised from the dead. 
to a new physical and spiritual life. But the problem that Paul's going to address is there's some people that don't believe that's true or don't believe that's a big deal. Let's look at verse 12 again. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, the people that Paul is writing to is a a group of people that make up a local church in this city in Corinth. And so what Paul says in verses 1 through 11 about the fact that Christ has died and that he has been raised is something they believe. They don't disbelieve that. They're not struggling with that. But something that some of them don't believe is that anyone else will be resurrected from the dead, namely followers of Jesus. See, being in the city of Corinth, they would have a lot of influences from the surrounding culture. And the culture that they find themselves in is a culture that denies the possibility of life after death. They live in this Greco-Roman culture that when it thought about what happens after death was that life was completely done. People might exist in some kind of shadowy existence. There's no substance to it, though. And they would have believed and thought that the idea of a physical, bodily existence after death would have been a joke. It was laughable to those that thought that they were educated. That's the the culture that the people of Corinth find themselves in. But isn't it interesting that we find ourselves in a very similar culture? Our culture is not much different today. As one pastor recently wrote, he said, Today, people are more likely to believe in a zombie than the resurrected Jesus. See, if we talk about the idea of Christ being raised, people might turn their head and, and, and disregard that and deny that. But when we go a step further than that and say it's not just that Christ is raised from the dead, but those that know and follow Christ will also be resurrected from the dead one day, people might think, seriously? You really believe that? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you don't believe in the supernatural. Maybe you don't believe in the miraculous at all. Thinking, man, those things are not possible Because they go against natural order. There's nothing outside of us being physical and biological beings in a physical and biological existence. And even if those things are possible, there's no way to prove them. They're not verifiable. And if we can't prove it, if we can't verify it, then it can't be true. What you see is what you get. This is all that there is. Then death comes and life is over. But see, the interesting thing about that thought, though, is that it also requires faith. It requires belief. Because just as we can't prove that life exists after death outright, I don't care how many books are written about that, where somebody has some experience, though we can't prove those things, we also can't prove that it doesn't exist either. So that's what Paul's going to get into. That's why he's going to talk about this. It's why we, as his people and those that are gathered here today, need to think about this. Because we may think, look, is the resurrection of Christ or anyone else for that matter really that big of a deal? We might believe, well, I look, I, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Or I believe that Jesus was a good teacher and he set a good example for us. Or I believe that Jesus was a good person who fought for the marginalized. So who cares if he or anyone else is really raised from the dead. Well, Paul hears those objections, but then he lays out the implications of why this is not just some small thing. It is a huge deal for us. And he does it in these series of if-then statements that we read at the beginning. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. 
And if Christ is not raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. He goes even to say we would even be misrepresenting God because we said that God is the one that raised him. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul concludes with that striking statement, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, believing that there's nothing that happens after we die, that there is no future hope, then we are of all people most to be pitied. See, the gospel, the good news, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the bottom falls out of faith, and it's all futile, it's all meaninglessness. See, the resurrection is not some inconsequential thing that we can take or leave. It is foundational. There must be resurrection for us to have hope at all. You may say, well, why is that the case? Why why do we need to have the resurrection for us to be able to have hope? It's because you and I find ourselves in this place where we are in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We know that the reality of the gospel says that sin has been defeated, but we live in a world where death is still present. And so we struggle. We suffer. We have difficulties that we have to navigate through in life. All of us continue to experience the effects of sin, both personally and cosmically, in our life. And if we are banking on a Christ who is not raised then what hope do we have for any of those things to ever change? So Paul has used a bit of logic to lay out the seriousness and the necessity of the resurrection for us to have a future hope and showing us the futility of our faith if it isn't true. But then he talks with the Corinthians about the inconsistency of their behavior and his behavior if Christ is not raised and his followers are not raised. So jump with me down to verse 29 through 32. Let's see what Paul says there. He says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, let me just say straight away, verse 29 is a weird verse. And there's not a lot of agreement on what is going on here, what's going on in Corinth, and why Paul even mentions that. So I'll just say that there's a lot of different interpretations about what Paul's talking about in verse 29. And and the possibility is that the, the Corinthians could have been baptizing people on behalf of someone else who passed away. The, the, the Mormon religion has a whole theology around this, one verse, baptizing people in this way. And, and that's what seems to be going on if we just take a simple reading of this. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that that would be wrong. It would be against the truth of the gospel because it's only by personal faith in Christ that we can be reconciled to God. It's not through any kind of sacramentalism that we do something like take communion or be baptized that we earn our right to be in relationship with God. So we know that from the rest of Scripture, but it could have been happening in Corinth because we have to notice that Paul doesn't condone that they're doing this. He just uses it as an example. He just states it. But here's the deal. Regardless of what's going on, and we could list off all the interpretations of verse 29, regardless of what's going on, the main point is this. Whatever it is, 
was a contradiction of not believing in the resurrection of the dead. It was doing something that's inconsistent with what they say they believed. They said they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, yet they're doing this thing. And Paul says, that's a contradiction of what you believe. But you and I do stuff like that all the time. We can say with our mouths we believe one thing, but then the way we live our life portrays something different. And that happens both with Christians and those who aren't yet Christians. Is that we can espouse belief, but our behavior doesn't always match up with that. And so Paul's using that example for the Corinthians. He's telling a group of professing Christians that they are inconsistent in their worldview. He goes on to say, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then it's pointless for him to risk his life for the sake of the gospel. He says, why would I fight these beasts at Ephesus? Not literal animals. I think he's talking about the the difficulty, the mobs that came after him to seek to see him thrown out, killed, thrown in jail, whatever it happened to be. He's saying, why would I risk my life if I didn't believe there was something else to come? My goal would be self-preservation, not a willingness to let everything go for the sake of the gospel. But then Paul drives the biggest implication home for us and for the Corinthians. The rest of verse 32 says this, If the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, including Christ, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is the good life, if your best life really is now, then live it up. Live it up. Again, it's interesting, right? Our culture, compared to the Corinthians, is very similar. I mean, isn't this the mantra of our own culture? When we say YOLO, for those of you who don't know what that means, you only live once. You only live once, man. Just go live it up. Do whatever you want to do. This life is all there is. This is the good life. Now, that would be a valid way to live. It would be a totally valid way to live if there's nothing beyond death for any of us. No physical existence for us at all. Just the shadowy, disconnected substance of, or lack of substance for us. If there's nothing else beyond this life, this would be a valid way to live. To say, man, you only live once. Just eat and drink because tomorrow we die. That would be valid if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised. But that's not what happened. Look back at verse 20 through 22. Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that we can say there is nothing after death. We can live like that's the case. We can deny the resurrection, but the fact remains that Christ has been raised. He appeared to all the people that we looked at in verses 1 through 11 last week. That's the testimony of the church. It has been for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. That's been the testimony of the church, the testimony of this church, and the Spirit in you testifies to the fact That Christ has been raised. And because of that, it changes everything for everyone. Because it means that this life is not all that there is. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits. A farmer would go out at the beginning of a harvest time to test the fruit of the crop. 
to see what kind of crop can I expect to get this year. And so he would test the first fruits of that crop. And knowing if that was a good fruit, if it was bearing good fruit, then that farmer could expect that the rest of the crop will follow suit. See, since Christ has been raised, you and I can expect that all of us who are united with him by faith will be raised to a new life as well. Not just spiritually, but physically. And being united to him, being united with him, is the key. See, verse 21, Paul tells us the reality of every last person. You and I are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We are either united with Adam or we are united with Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be united? I was trying to think about this. It's like, well, man, we unite things. We fuse things together. We use things like super glue or gorilla glue to stick two things together. We try to bond things together. But this is more than that. It's more significant than that. What it means to be united with Adam or united with Christ is that everything that is Adam's or everything that is Christ's is ours. See, Adam was the first man and he rebelled against God. And Adam represented all of humanity. By his rebellion, he brought sin to bear on every single person. So you and I all inherit sin and its consequences. Namely, death. Both physical and spiritual death. Spiritual death is like being like a zombie. We are physically moving around. But there's no spiritual life in us. We are the walking dead who are separated from God because of our sin. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. But all of us also will experience physical death as well. There's no way for any of us to overcome it. It doesn't matter what someone tries to sell you to be able to reverse those effects, to prolong those things. Nothing can stop that process. And you and I live in a world that is marred by sin and its effects. You and I are united with Adam because we've inherited his sin and are now willing participants in his rebellion. What this means is that death is universal, both physically and spiritually, but it isn't normal. It's universal, but it isn't normal. It isn't the way that things are supposed to be. And if that was the end of the story, it'd be a bad ending to the story, but it isn't the end of the story because a better Adam has come. A better Adam has come. The last Adam has come, and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around what that really means. But what we know is that Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, not inheriting the sin of Adam, See, what Jesus deserved was life because he didn't rebel against the Father. But instead of gaining that life, he willingly went to a cross to lay down his life in the place of sinners like you and like me. He died the death that you deserve. He died the death that I deserve because of our sin. He was a substitute for us. He stood in our place, taking on our sin and the punishment that we deserve, not because he had to. Not because he was obligated to, but because he willingly wanted to do it. He did it because of his love for us. But we know, as Paul has said, that Jesus didn't stay dead. He, in fact, did rise again and is alive forevermore. So listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. He kind of lays this out for us, similarly to what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians. 
Romans 5, verse 17, Paul says this, For if, because of one man's trespass, talking about Adam, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 6, right after this, Paul goes on to say that if we are united with Christ, his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. See, Jesus came to rescue a broken humanity, and in doing that, to create a new humanity. And he did that when he rose again from the grave. And so you and I now, by faith, can be united with Jesus instead of with Adam But our union with Jesus is not based on proximity. It's not just about our relationship with him. We are in him and he is in us. Christ becomes our new representative. And when you or I truly turn to him in faith, we inherit now everything that's his. Eternal life, both physically and spiritually. See, our union with Jesus, being united to him, is about more than just being saved. It's the fact that we get, to, we get to know God and God sees us as he sees Christ in us. He sees Jesus. You and I now have access to God like Jesus has access to the Father. We are now his children as Jesus is his son. It's not just about being, being saved. It's not just about having sin forgiven. It's about having everything that is Jesus now becomes yours if you are in Christ See, if you are in Christ, if I am in Christ, we now get to participate in this new humanity. And what that means for you is not just spiritual, but that one day you will experience a resurrection like Christ's. That's amazing news. That is news that should change everything for you and for me. That one day we will experience that. I hope that's encouraging to you this morning, no matter what's going on. I hope it's hope for you this morning, no matter what is going on, is knowing that one day we will be raised like Christ. See, through the fall, when sin came into the world, Adam began the process of death for all. And death seems like an unbeatable enemy. And on our own, it is unbeatable. But that process has been overturned through the resurrection of Jesus. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the death of death has come. See, at Christ's resurrection, he set in motion the defeat of death for everyone who is united to him by faith. But something we have to understand this morning is that there's a now and a not yet reality to this. Because you and I are physically existing now. And as I said, we still experience the consequence, the reality of a broken world around us. But Paul understands that. And so he addresses that in verses 23 through 26. He says, we will all be made alive, he says in verse 22. If we're united in Christ, but then verse 23, he says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, if we are in Christ now, if we are united with Jesus now, we have all risen spiritually 
But in the future, what Paul is saying is when Jesus returns, we will all rise physically. See, resurrection does not then depend on our ability to imagine it. If we're sitting thinking, but I can't verify that, I can't wrap my mind around it, I can't see that as being plausible or real, that's not what it depends on. It doesn't depend on our ability to imagine it. What it depends on is God Almighty's ability to design it and make it so. And God says that is what is going to happen. See, Christ's resurrection, the hope that it gives us is that it is a pledge and assurance of the future resurrection of those who are united to him. And sojourn, that is our greatest hope for the future and our greatest hope for right now, this simple truth that I am his and he is mine forever. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us from that. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us right now? Why in the world does that matter right now? You think that's a future hope, that's about when Christ returns, but what about right now? What it means is is that our only hope in death is life. Our only hope in death is life. As all of us face the reality of death, the brokenness of the world, and the brokenness of our bodies, our hope in the midst of that is life. Christ who's been raised, knowing that we also will be raised. And why does that matter for us here and now? It matters because it means that there's more to life than eating and drinking. There's more to life than eating and drinking. See, this is not just about the future. It changes everything for us now. If we go back to that example at the beginning, talking about receiving that phone call. Somebody calls you up and says you're going to inherit millions of dollars. And you, you receive that phone call. You receive that good news But what you hear on the other end is that you're not going to get that tomorrow. It might be next month. It might be a few months from now. There's a lot of legal stuff you have to go through, but that money is going to come. It would change things for you right now in that moment. You might begin to think about quitting your job or go ahead and write that resignation letter. I'm out. I know this money's coming. Maybe you'd go out and start looking for a new car or even buy one because your car you've been driving around forever, it's on its last leg, and you say, man, I just want some air conditioning or something like that, and so you go purchase a new car. Maybe you would think about how you can pay off your school loans, knowing that those are going to be done soon. Maybe you'd go on a mission trip for several weeks or several months or several years, knowing that your financial needs will be met, you won't have any. Maybe you would start to think about people in your life who are struggling in different ways, saying how I could use those resources to bless them and care for them. And you begin to do that in this very moment. You wouldn't worry because you know your financial future is secure. You'd start to do all of those things now because you know your inheritance is coming. It's a sure promise. See, Paul's challenge to the Corinthians and to us is this, as one pastor puts it. You and I are to live as people who not only have a past in Christ, but a future in Christ as well. See, so often we find ourselves in a fog. You ever try to drive, drive through a dense fog? Sometimes you can't see much further than a few feet in front of your car. You don't know what the road looks like ahead. All you're looking at is your immediate circumstances. See, a lot of us find ourselves in a fog, unable to think about or see the reality of the future to see how it affects our lives here and now. And so we live life as if this is all there is. We're inconsistent with what we say we believe. See, you and I can say we believe that we will be one day raised from the dead to be like Christ, to inherit all those things that Jesus has, that he gives to us. But the reality of our life right now, how we live it, says that we don't really believe that. 
we start to pursue the pleasures of this world. We live a compromised identity, forgetting that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. We forget that we're united with Jesus and all that that means for us. So we get wrapped up in acquiring more, laying up for ourselves treasures on earth instead of treasures in heaven. We get caught up in the rat race of our culture that says, get as much as you can, as fast as you can, then retire and relax, pursue heaven on earth, because this is all there is. But the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34, those truths should impact our hearts and overflow into the way we live our life. See, in verse 34, Paul says something to the Corinthians that we need to hear this morning. In verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. Wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. I think if we're honest with ourselves at different points, at different times, maybe right now in your life, is that we just walk through life sleepily. We have a sleepy faith and a sleepy existence walking through life in a dense fog, not able to see the hope we have in Christ right here and right now. And so this morning as a church family, I want us to wake up. I want us to wake up to help one another, wake up to the glorious hope of our future inheritance and realize the reality of that right now. And so to close, I just want to talk about two interrelated things in light of this truth to help us to wake up. I want us to examine our hearts and expend our lives, to examine our hearts and and expend our lives. Examine your heart. Biblically speaking, our heart is where the motivational structures of our life reside. From our hearts we speak, from our hearts we do, from our hearts we think. And when we're confronted with the truth that this life is not all that there is, whether this is the first time you've ever heard that or you've heard it a thousand times, it impacts our hearts. Because when we hear that truth, when it presses on the reality of how we live our lives, it begins to expose where we're seeking joy, where we're seeking peace, where we're looking for comfort and satisfaction. It begins to expose those things, knowing, man, I'm looking for that over here, but what I'm reminded of this morning is that my hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ and this future hope of being with Jesus forever, not just as a spirit, but being raised physically with him. And so that should lead us and encourage us to repent And turn afresh to our true and lasting hope, our risen King. So it's good for us to stop and examine our hearts and ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart right now? Where is my hope? If you're honest with yourself, are you living life like this is all there is? Or are you living like there's a greater inheritance to come? Is how you live right now a contradiction of what you say you believe? Maybe this morning you find yourself recognizing this reality in your own life that you have been living only as if this life and for this life is all that exists. Whether you do that outright, acknowledging that fully or functionally so. No matter where you come in that place, no matter where you're at today, I want to encourage you this morning to turn to Christ in faith, believing that Jesus is better. He's better now and he's better forever than anything that this world can offer to you. I was talking with a guy last week after we gathered together as the church, and, and he said something that stuck out to me. He said, you know, the thing about zombies is that they're not whole or complete. They, they don't have real life. They are the walking dead. 
And then he said this, the only one who can give new life and do it right is Jesus. The only one who can give new life and do it right is Jesus. Because Jesus has been raised and because Jesus himself says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked this question, do you believe this? See, this hope is available to anyone who will receive it by faith. Believing that Jesus takes your old and makes you new. That he takes your sin and gives you his perfect life. So do you believe that this morning? Will you believe that tomorrow? Is that your greatest hope? That though you die, yet shall you live. Sojourn, our only hope in death is life, the risen Jesus. See, when death is defeated, life has meaning now. It has meaning. And when that truth impacts our heart, it changes the way that we live here and now. So we can examine our hearts, but then I want to call us to expend our lives. See, this truth should remind us that this life is not all that there is. It should remind us that we have a future hope, an unimaginable inheritance that will not be sitting on a cloud playing a harp at a really long church service. That's not our future existence. We're going to be raised to new life, placed in a new city, a bustling community of activity, a bustling community of activity that has pure worship where there'll be no more darkness, no more dysfunction, no more decay, and no more death. But until that day, until that day, we can pour out our lives here and now for the sake of that good news going forward to our neighbors and to the nations. As another pastor says, if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, we have nothing to fear in everything we need. When we believe the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, you and I do not have to fear death because our hope in the face of death is life forever. That should be freeing news to us this morning. Knowing and believing this frees us to give everything, even our lives, for the sake of the gospel. This means that we can do death-defying things. Death-defying things like smuggling Bibles into hostile countries so that other people might have the word of God. It means doing death-defying things like maybe going to those hostile countries and giving our lives away for the sake of those people hearing the good news of Christ bringing that message of life to those who are walking around spiritually dead. It means that we can use all of our resources not to build bigger and better and nicer barns for ourselves, but for the sake of others because we know that our inheritance to come in Christ is greater than anything that we can amass here. It means that we can invest in development and renewal to show mercy and care for the poor and the marginalized because we know that this life is not all that there is. It means that you and I can walk next door and go to our neighbor's house and take real time to get to know them. Real time to get to know them, to be their actual friends because we recognize that using our time for the sake of others can impact their eternity. So you and I no longer need to hoard all that we have, but we can strive to use all that God has given us to see the gospel go forward. We can have generous hearts and be generous givers. We can give abundantly because we've been blessed abundantly in Christ. This is not about a dollar amount. It's about a changed heart that leads to a changed life. 
It's not asking God what's the minimum of what I need to do to get by because we're not trying to earn anything with God. It's about scheming for the kingdom of God, saying, God, what can I give away? How can I use my life? How can I expend myself for the sake of you? How can I use all that you've given me, God, to see the mission go forward through this local church in Fairfax and all over the world? We've budgeted this year as a church to take $101,000 and give it away to local and global mission. As a local church, as a family, we're doing that together. But that will only happen if together we fight the fog of our culture that says we need to hold on to more for us. It will only happen when we recognize that the new humanity that Jesus has made us a part of, if we're in Christ, frees us to give of ourselves radically and sacrificially and joyfully for the sake of the gospel because we know there's more to life than eating and drinking. Sojourn, what would it look like for us to be a community that expends itself because of the truth of 1 Corinthians 15? What would God allow us the privilege of being a part of if we really believe this to be true? What would it look like for us to plant churches all over Northern Virginia, to plant a church in Manassas, to plant a church in Herndon, to plant a church in South Arlington, to plant churches all over the place in this area if we would expend ourselves to that? What would it look like for us to send missionaries all over the world to send people out, to train them up and send them out that they might take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, going to hostile places, going to closed countries, going to unreached people groups. If we believe this truth, if we believe about that we can expend our lives in this way, then we can be about making disciples. We can be about preaching the gospel because we know there's more to life than eating and drinking. All of this is a community project, though. It's not something that we just do as a disconnected people. We do this together as a family who is in Christ together. We talk together. We pray together. We scheme together. We speak truth into each other's lives together. We say, brother, sister, stay on the narrow way that leads to life. Don't be drawn off track by the mantra of our culture that says, get as much as you can now. This is all there is. We need to help each other, remind each other of that. Sojourn, as we examine our hearts, let's expend our lives because we believe there's more to life than the here and now. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Following Jesus will require your whole life, but you and I can do that, not holding anything back because Jesus is risen and sin and death have been defeated. So what does your life look like right now? What does your life say about you right now? Where is your hope? Look, sometimes life is, is difficult. Sometimes it's particularly hard. And there's people in this room right now that are struggling, that are suffering in different ways. Where it seems that all that really is around us is decay and darkness. But I want you to be encouraged this morning. Because of the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to be reminded that a light has emerged in the darkness and is leading us home. Today, you and I live in light of the hope of the future 
the day when Jesus returns and raises us anew to be with him forever in the light of his glory and the overwhelming joy of his presence and announces to us, behold, I am making all things new. This is our hope. And you can rest tonight and you can rest each day in between no matter what is going on in your life knowing that this promise is true, that Jesus will make all things new, including you, including me. It's a promise, it's sure, it's true, because our God is faithful and our King is risen. So together, let's believe that hope. Let's believe that and encourage one another in that reality, that we might examine our hearts, and as we do that, expend our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. When when the truth of 1 Corinthians 15 hits us, that this isn't just about Jesus being raised, but us being raised too should lead us to celebrate And our times together each week should be just that, a celebration that all that Christ has done and all that he is doing. We remind one another every week through our singing and through preaching and through taking communion that Christ died for our sin and rose again to give us new life. And that has changed everything for us. So this morning as you come forward to take the bread, symbolizing Christ's body given for you, And as you drink the cup, symbolizing Christ's blood shed for you, rejoice in this amazing news. You are united with Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And nothing can ever change that. And may that amazing news compel you to live your life for the glory of God and the good of others until Jesus returns or calls you home. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, As we come forward to take communion, we would just ask you not to come forward to take it. And the reason for that is because we declare when we take the bread and take the cup that Jesus is our only hope in this life and the life to come. And so if you don't yet believe that, I don't want you to come forward because this doesn't do anything. It's not magical. It doesn't change anything for you. What changes you is Jesus. And so this morning, if you find yourself not yet knowing Christ, would you just stay in your seat and just pray? Ask God to reveal himself to you. If you're ready to know Christ today, to start following him today, there's no magical words or anything you have to say. You can just say to God, God, would you save me today? I believe Jesus is the only way because he died for me and rose again. Just pray and tell God that this morning so that you can start a new relationship with Christ so that next week you could come forward to take the bread and take the cup and celebrate that your only hope is Jesus. And if you have questions about what it means to know Christ, to follow Christ, or anything that we've talked about, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. That's why we're here, is to proclaim this message and help one another on this journey that God has us on. Those of you that will come forward, you can either come to the front. There'll also be some tables in the back. You can tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, that even in a text that's a bit more difficult sometimes to wrap our minds around to understand the theology of what Paul's talking about, that we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged to have hope. In the face of death, we can have hope in the life that you give us here and now and in the future. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. And as we reflect on this truth that would cause us to examine our hearts, that we'd look at our lives and and really be honest, are we just living life as if this is all there is? Or do we have hope that one day you will come and you will call us by name like you did Lazarus and raise us from the grave?
Father, I pray that we live lives expending ourselves for the sake of your name and your gospel going to the ends of the earth that more people would no longer be existing as spiritually dead but would have spiritual life to become our brothers and sisters. So Lord, work in our hearts, change our lives because we've listened to your word today. We pray that you get all the honor and praise because of that. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.